1: With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JASONT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in present Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1 877 770 Stop in Louisiana. 1 800 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1 877 8 HOPE NY or text HOPE NY to 467 369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1 800 889 9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. One eight. Dot one eight hundred gambler. net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight presented by Fan Duel here at the volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. Happy Obi-Wan Kenobi release day, something that I am very excited to uh, indulge myself with immediately after this show is over, completely inconsequentially. I wore my Star Wars shirt tonight. Um, Awesome, incredible performance from the Golden State Warriors, enough fight from Dallas to not be completely embarrassing, which is about the best that we can hope for in this conference final, which has been an utter disaster, but... I believe that the disaster that this conference finals has been is largely fueled by Golden State being much better than Dallas. Yes, I was wrong. Dallas is not in the same league as Golden State. They are much better. And that played out in the series. And Boston is much better than Miami. And more often than not, the blowout nature of this conference finals has been a swing back and forth between the better team dominating and then the better team letting their foot off the gas periodically because they're so much better than the team they're playing, which is what happened with Golden State in Game 4 and what happened with Boston in Game 1 and Game 3. <clears throat> the chasm between these two teams is gigantic, and that led to a pretty ugly conference final, although Boston still has to close the deal. But I do believe our NBA final series, which I expect to be Boston versus Golden State, is going to be much more interesting. We have a packed Show tonight. I want to get into the weeds of this game tonight, talk a little bit about how this Golden State Warriors engine continues to impress me, a little bit about Luka and the way he went down tonight, and some kind of concerning markers that I noticed, not just on the defensive end, but also with some of his off ball threat uh, stuff. And then if you guys stick around for the end of the show, I want to take some time. I'm not as big on the player rankings as I used to be when I was younger, but I do still think they carry some importance. And there was an epic debate in the social media world about whether or not Steph or LeBron will be higher all time after this if the Warriors were to win a championship this year fueled of course as always by the talking head cycle at ESPN this time Patrick Beverly who is clearly not afraid to say anything scary so we will get to some LeBron versus Steph stuff at the end of the show Uh, before we get started all of you guys who are listening, if you could take the time to like this video, I would sincerely appreciate that. That helps us a lot. Also, if you could subscribe to the channel so that you don't miss any more of our content, that would be awesome. Draymond Green, I'm sure we'll be reacting soon in the next couple of days. And then last but not least, follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. So you guys can see the video breakdowns that we do. We have big plans to do a lot of footage, uh, like actual on-court footage stuff during the NBA finals. So you're going to want to be following me for that. So I wanted to get started by talking a little bit about the importance of having multiple offensive threats, which has been the difference between Golden State and Dallas and the difference between Boston and Miami. The, we, we looked at this Boston game last night. You go into an important game on the road in game five, and Jason Tatum plays poorly, right? Marcus Smart plays poorly. You know, you don't shoot the ball particularly well. But that team is loaded with guys that can score. And so, even though those two guys didn't play particularly well, you got a big Derek White game. You got a monster Jalen Brown game, right? The anatomy of having multiple threats is, chances are, you know, like this is just the anatomy of being a basketball player. Any of you guys who are listening who play pickup don't you have days where you go up and everything's going in and then you have days where you're going up where you're taking the same shots and they just miss for whatever reason, right? Like there's a lot of, you know, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, like shot, just like a difference in expected shot result versus actual shot result. Right. And if you only have a couple of threats, it's far more likely that you might catch them on a night where no one's scoring. We go forward to golden state tonight. You know, I have once again uh, met up with uh, with Live Moods, our, our, uh, our one of our big gambling people here at the Volume, and we were talking about a same game parlay to put together today. And you know, Clay Thompson uniquely seems to have a nose for these types of settings. He's one of those guys that seems to get even more confident and have even more audacity when the stakes are highest, which is why he's so reliable towards the ends of playoff series. And it's such an interesting dynamic. It's such an interesting dynamic in the sense that that threat is always, that's always a possibility when you have that much talent on the floor. If it wasn't Clay tonight, it would have been someone else. Jordan Poole had an okay game, right? I think he had 14 points or 15 points, right? Like, that's an okay game from Jordan Poole. You know, you got uh, Steph Curry was largely playing decoy tonight. And the value of having all those threats is what allows you to have the enough shots at the roulette table to have a couple of them hit. If I got six guys that can go for 20 points, it's a lot more possible that a couple of guys actually do. Andrew Wiggins couldn't buy a three-point shot tonight, but he was massive scoring in the mid-range and at the rim, right? Like, that's, that's a nice threat coming through for you there. Kevon Looney, 18 rebounds. Seven offensive rebounds, seven additional possessions, including what I thought was the dagger to Clay Thompson on the right wing after an Andrew Wiggins missed three on the left wing. And with Andrew, with, with uh, Kevon Looney, it's not the same kind of threat, right? It's not, you know, him going for 25 points. What it is, is it's him remaining a threat off the basketball by simply playing hard and having a nose for the ball, chasing after offensive rebounds, right? And securing the defensive rebounds. This is something I've been super critical of a lot of players over the years. I, I'm going to be critical about Luke, uh, uh, with Luca about it later tonight. You know, there are roughly, depending on the team you play, around 100 possessions in a basketball game. You're not going to shoot or pass on all of them. You might be, like, if you're a starter, you're going to be in there for 70-ish possessions. So what are you going to do on the other 30 or 40 possessions? when you're not involved, right? That's what Kevin Looney does to remain a threat. But most importantly, and this is, I think, the, the thing that most frequently gets glossed over with this whole Golden State Warrior system, because don't get me wrong, they have a lot of talent. Golden State and, D- and Boston have proven that they have the two most talented rosters in this playoff field, unfortunately because of the decline of Phoenix's superstars, which we, we've been over on the show before. But there's something very different about the way Steph plays And the way that opens things up for other scores. You know, one of the, you know, the heliocentric style, I think, gets maligned too much. I think people point to heliocentric styles failing when more often than not it is talent. Like everyone says, oh, 2018 Harden, it failed. And don't get me wrong, Harden wasn't great, deserves a ton of criticism there. But they were up 3 2 before Chris Paul went down, right? They look at, you know, things like the, Uh, We look at like the Clippers last year. It's very heliocentric. It's very Reggie Jackson and Paul George just isolating while they space the floor. But it's like, I mean, if they have Kawhi Leonard, they probably beat Phoenix, right? You know? And then this year with Luka, it's like this style, the spreading the floor, it it has a lot more effectiveness than you would think. This team has out-king coverage with respect to the amount of talent that it has. It has a lot more to do with the fact that Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie are running your alternate possessions. So, to be clear up front, I do think heliocentric basketball can work if you have the right roster construction, but this style that Steph plays with also works and it's damn effective. It requires a different kind of thing, right? Like there's a huge difference between a spot up threat and a scoring threat for heliocentric systems. You need spot up threats for movement systems. And with a star that can succeed so much off ball, like Steph, it helps more to have scoring threats. That's why you saw guys like Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston and Leandro Barbosa and every, you know, Jordan Poole, these kinds of guys succeeding alongside Steph that have a scoring archetype because with the way that Steph inverts a defense, with the way that he can succeed off ball, with the way that he dictates attention, even when he doesn't have the ball a lot more often than not, it has to do with guys being able to put the ball on the floor and score. Rather than with a heliocentric system, you need guys like Maxi Kleba, and you need guys like Reggie Bullock who can just spot up and be deadly when you help as guys like Luka are driving into the lane. But what's, this Steph play style, it, we've talked about it before, and I said the same thing to Colin Coward when I went on his show on Sunday. It's impossible to replicate because there just isn't a player around the league that has the requisite commitment to winning to be willing to do something like be a decoy all night long. Like there was a little flurry there in the third quarter where Steph tried to score, but outside of that, he basically was content to absorb defensive attention and let his teammates go off. That's very unique around the NBA. The Warriors had 36 assists on 45 field goals tonight. That's an insane number. Over 75% of their field goals were assisted tonight. Think about how wild that is. That kind of thing just doesn't happen anywhere else in the league. That is a unique, impossible to replicate play style that is opened up by Steph, and everyone down the line is bought into it, including Clay Thompson, who was incredible tonight. I wanted to talk about this Clay Hot because, it, it, you know, the. the the anatomy of a Clay hot streak is so different than other scores. You know, a lot of Warriors fans over the course of the years will tell you that Steph is obviously a much better player than Clay. And obviously, Steph is a much better shooter than Clay. Steph's the best shooter of all time. But Warriors fans usually will admit that Clay's hot streaks are actually better than Steph's. He famously once scored what was it, thirty-seven points in a quarter. He once had sixty points in three quarters. Klay Thompson, be in, and it's a couple of different things. One, he's got a really quick release, and it's very. There's not a lot of wasted movement. It's one of the number one things that I coach kids on when I'm coaching my high school kids about shooting. You know, the more moving parts you have, the more margin for error there is, or the less margin for error there is. If I'm doing all sorts of weird stuff as I'm going up into my shot, all it takes is one of those parts getting out of whack for the shot to miss. Clay Thompson is one of my favorite players to show people as an example of beautiful shooting form because there is no wasted motion, which is one of the main things that allows him to get that muscle memory so dialed in that he can hit these hot streaks. And then the key is he's tall, he's six foot seven, and with that quick release at six foot seven, for Clay, if he wants to, it do- he doesn't have to work too hard to get a shot off. And so his hot streaks have always been so interesting to me because there's it's a different kind of helplessness than it is with Steph. A lot of times with Steph. You feel like you're guarding him well, and he's just making impossible shots because he's the best shooter of all time. With Clay, it just feels like he's getting great looks. He seems to have a nose for the ball. This is another huge detail. This is an instinct thing. It's not something you can coach. It's something that some players just have. It's like it's like the rebounders, like Kevin Looney, who just have an instinctual nose for the basketball. They just. They seem to know where the ball's coming off the rim. They seem to know where they're supposed to be to get the rebound. Clay's the same way with his spotting up. His ability to relocate and kind of just have a feeling of where he can get the basketball. And kind of just have a feeling of where the open spot in the defense is. Every time there's an offensive rebound, doesn't it just kind of seem like Clay's open? He'll, he'll sense that sort of thing. He'll sense when the offensive rebound is there and he won't get back on defense. He'll relocate. He's got all these little unique traits that are so different from other shooters around the league. And I think that's why, even though he's not as good a shooter as Steph, he can have hot streaks that are even crazier. But overall, I thought tonight was an absolute clinic in what makes this Golden State offense great. And I'm going to be really critical of Dallas and their defense here in a little bit. But there over the course of the last third of that game, I thought Dallas actually was defending pretty well. And Golden State still was able to get the shots that they needed to get. So salute to them. Um, I was bummed out by the conference finals. I thought they were boring on a bunch of different levels. First of all, Golden State proved to be way better than Dallas. And Steph proved to be way better than Luka. I made a prediction when I wasn't confident in. I told you guys I wasn't confident in this particular series. But I thought Dallas... I leaned slightly towards Dallas in six games. I was flat out wrong. I was wrong about Luka over Steph. I was wrong about the Dallas roster and being able to keep up. I have to own that. Golden State proved themselves to be the better team. I've been right about a lot of stuff in this playoff run, and I've been wrong about a lot of stuff in this playoff run. It's just kind of the nature of the way things go. But that talent gap between Golden State and Dallas, as well as the talent gap between Boston and Miami, I think is a huge part of why these games have been blowouts. I think it's been a combination of Boston and Golden State dominating games because they are better, and Dallas and Miami hanging tight and, and, and taking advantage of lackadaisical effort from Boston and Golden State when they get too arrogant and they let their foot off the gas, like what happened to Golden State in game, uh, in game 4 and what happened to Boston in games 1 and Game 3, right? This series is going to be a whole lot closer if Boston can close the deal tomorrow, which I expect them to. We're looking at, again, this is the biggest example that I can use to kind of demonstrate to you guys the difference in this matchup compared to what Golden State has been dealing with through this playoff run. Golden State averaged like over 120 points per 100 possessions against Denver. Denver was outmatched with talent. Jokic had so much on his offensive load that he basically had to mail in the defensive end just to have the energy to hang in the games. Golden State lit him on fire. Golden State destroyed this Dallas team. They embarrassed them on the defensive end. Dallas has a whole whole other defensive set of issues they're going to have to confront this summer. With Ja Morant on the floor, the Warriors scored about 112 points per 100 possessions, which is pretty good. Not as good as they did in the other two series, but pretty good. Here's the issue. When Memphis was without Ja through that entire series, the Warriors had 104 offensive rating. That's pretty low. Boston is a much, much better defense. Now, to be clear, I'm picking Golden State to win this series, but I expect it to be much closer and to be by far Golden State's biggest challenge of this playoff run. And it will have a lot to do with the fact that they are facing a defensive matchup that they haven't faced yet in this series. Boston ran a ton of drop coverage against Miami. Miami, their offensive system is, is reliant on a lot of dribble handoffs and high ball screens with BAM. And guys like Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry, You know, even a little bit of Jimmy Butler, Tyler Harrow, coming off of those screens and pulling up jump shots, right? And I vehemently disagreed with the strategy. I thought it was a huge part of why Miami got the wins they did early in the series. But the, way, the, the reason why it broke for Boston is everyone went cold. Max Strews completely fell apart. Kyle Lowry completely fell apart. Tyler Harrow got hurt. And then Jimmy Butler completely fell apart. Gabe Vincent has been the only guard, really, for Miami that's played well, right? We're upgrading all of that for this series. Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Jordan Poole, even a little bit of Andrew Wiggins. This is an entirely different level of pull-up jump shooting team and curl jump shooting team and movement jump shooting team. So I don't think Boston's going to be able to run the same drop coverage that they did. So this is where rim pressure becomes critical. I expect Boston to do a ton of switching. Now that what happens with switching, but Golden State's going to do things like they're going to run wild off ball actions to try to confuse Boston switches, to try to bait them into mistakes. They will get some layups and dunks in this series off of that type of off-ball movement and mistakes from Boston. But a large part of what Golden State will have to do offensively in this series is to attack switches. So, this is where this is this is where shot selection becomes key and rim pressure becomes key, specifically for Jordan Poole and Steph. When you're attacking a switching defense, it becomes about your ability to create an advantage against your defender specifically the weakest defender on the floor that you're trying to target, which with Boston, there's just not a lot of options there. So the, the, the tendency for a lot of players in these types of situations is to fall for the trap and to go to a series of isolation moves and take pull-up jump shots. It's one of the biggest things that Boston's had the issues with throughout this series, which, by the way, will impact Boston when they're on offense, and I'm going to get to that here in just a minute. But the best way, the smart way to attack a switching defense is to apply rim pressure to engage help defenders. Because you don't want to run into an isolation contest. If you run into an isolation contest, you put yourself at the mercy of physicality and Boston's going to have physical advantage over advantages over you in this series. But if you turn it into an isolation contest where they're isolating and you are getting kick out wide open shots and nice you know, uh, offensive opportunities attacking closeouts, then you have the advantage. The only way to get to the point where you can attack closeouts against the switching defense is if you apply rim pressure and engage rim defenders. So there will be a ton of pressure on Steph and Jordan Poole in particular to get dribble penetration. And they both do it very differently. Steph does it by weaponizing the threat of his shooting to keep you on your toes, leaning forward, constantly concerned about the threat of the pull-up and weaponizing that to get around you. For Jordan Poole, it's just straight line speed and the ability to change direction in combination with the ability to handle the basketball. There was a massive pivotal play in the third quarter of this game tonight. Uh, Luca makes a tough floater in the lane, gets it down to eight. Actually, someone else had scored, but they got it down to eight. And it's the end of the quarter. And Jordan Poole brings the ball up the floor, and he's got Reggie Bullock on him. And he just hits him with a vicious right-to-left crossover and completely dusts him, a good defensive player, and gets into the lane on a, in a blur and finishes with a left-handed layup off the glass. It was a massive play in that game to get it to double digits going into the break. And it's a clear demonstration of what I'm talking about here. The, one of the keys to the series in this Boston-Golden State matchup if Boston can close the deal against Miami tomorrow again, which who knows? But if they can close that deal and they end up in this matchup, the ability of Steph and Gold, and Steph and Jordan Poole to apply rim pressure against Boston switches and to get their defense in rotation is going to be pivotally important. Because if they get a 104 offensive rating against Boston, it might not be enough. It might have to be closer to 110. And the only way that's happening is if they get consistent rim pressure. I want to move over to the other side of the ball for a second. So the the I want to I want to take you guys back to the Brooklyn Boston series for a second. So in that series, Mil- or Brooklyn actually fared pretty well against that Boston defense. Which again, I, I've spoken very highly of that Boston defense. I think when they're actually dialed in and trying, and they have Robert Williams, I I, I think they're one of the best defenses of this era, if not the best defense of this era. They held a. KD Kyrie lineups during the regular season averaged about 122 points per 100 possessions. They held that same pairing to about 113 in the first round series. The consistent theme is that Boston's been holding your scoring to about 10 points less per 100 possessions than what you did in the regular season. But 113 is a pretty decent number for Brooklyn. And Boston swept them. And the reason is, is because Boston had no trouble scoring in that series a lot less trouble than they had against Milwaukee. And then they had against um, Miami. And one of the keys there was the way that Boston was able to attack small perimeter players, which Miami doesn't have much of in which Milwaukee didn't have much of. So what'll be interesting is golden state's ability to avoid mismatches, particularly guys like Steph and Jordan Poole, keeping your smaller, slighter guards off of the bigger Boston wings to attack. Again, this isn't like Luka, where he's going to methodically work you into the lane, herky-jerky, and you have plenty of time to help and recover. These are guys in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown that are going to put their head down and try to slash to the rim. And so one of the things that Golden State's done consistently in this playoff run that I think is very smart is they've used Steph and Jordan Poole in what's called a hedge and recover scheme. So there's a bunch of different types of pick and roll coverages. Right, we talk about drop coverage a lot on this on this show. We talk about switching on the show. There's different things you can do within drop coverages, like a catch hedge and things along those lines. But you don't see the hedge and recover very often anymore. It was primarily used about 10 years ago when power forwards were in the game, and you'd see old slow bigs hedge and recover out on the perimeter. You can kind of you can if you guys, those of you who have been watching the game for a while, just visualize it. You can imagine the big lumbering. A post player coming out to hedge, almost out to half court and then recovering, right? Well, the genius of the hedge and recover is it forces the ball handler to take a retreat dribble out to half court. And when you make a ball handler, make a retreat dribble out to half court, it just buys you time to recover around that. Okay. So what'll happen is Luca or somebody will call for Steph on a switch. And when he comes up, when Steph's man comes to set the screen, Instead of doing a switch, Steph will hedge hard, forcing Luka to take a retreat dribble, which gives Andrew Wiggins time to fight through the screen so that Steph can recover. It was the genius thing that Golden State did to try to keep guys like Jordan Poole and Steph off of Luka, which is why they weren't able to get that switch often. They were much more willing to give the Looney switch or the Bielitsa switch than they were to give the guard switches. That is going to be vitally important against Boston because Boston was relentless in attacking Patty Mills and attacking Kyrie Irving and it, it just and attacking Goran Dragic and all the slower, slight, skinny uh, guards that were playing for Brooklyn. That's going to be a really, really interesting part of this matchup. Andre Iguodala is going to be a key factor here because Andrew Wiggins demonstrated that he can stand up to stout wings the way he st- stood up to Luka. As a matter of fact, another thing I have to own I said in the Dallas series, I said, nobody, nobody on Golden State has a chance of guarding Luka. Now, I don't think anybody in the league can guard Luka in the sense like shut him down. But Andrew Wiggins demonstrated in that series, he can guard Luka. And by guard, I just mean naked so that he has to rely on the more difficult elements of his offensive game. So credit to Andrew Wiggins, I was wrong. There was one player on Golden State who could guard Luka. It was Andrew Wiggins ended up being a huge swing factor in the series. But if Andrew Wiggins is on Jason Tatum, who's going to guard Jalen Brown? That's an interesting – it's probably going to be Klay Thompson, right? But Klay Thompson's not the same defensive player that he was earlier in his career. This is where Andre Guadalla being available would be massive. Jalen Brown – first of all, Jalen Brown – have you guys noticed how many times Jalen Brown's gotten stripped in this series and turned the ball over? It's like every time he puts the ball on the floor and tries to go through traffic, the ball just goes to the other team. Andre Godala has some of the best hands of any defensive player that's ever played this game. So Andre Godala's availability so that they can physically match up with the two wings for Boston is going to be vitally important. Last thing I wanted to touch on for the NBA Finals, again, caveat, Boston has to close the deal. I think it's going to be really important for Golden State to do a ton of switching outside of those hedge and recover situations and test Boston's decision-making. So, as you've seen with Miami and with uh, Milwaukee, both of those teams have been able to get Boston to go through extended stretches where they can't score, largely fueled by baiting them into isolation basketball and getting Tatum and Brown to take stupid contested jump shots and avoid that same rim pressure that I say is so vitally important to attack these switching schemes. I expect Steve Kerr to do exactly exactly. What Eric Spolstra did, and to consistently mix things up, to consistently change coverages, and to consistently force Boston to test their decision making. I haven't checked it updated for Game Five, but through the first four games of the Conference Finals on the East, Boston averaged about 102 points in the half court per 100 possessions. That's a decent number. It's a lot better than they fared against Milwaukee, and so. That dynamic, that uh, that half-court dynamic, it's going to come down to which team can execute better there. Will it be Steph and Jordan Poole applying the rim pressure, getting Boston in rotation, and getting quality three-point shots for their wings? Or will it be Boston running over the small uh, guards of Golden State and getting into the lane? This is an incredibly close series. I think it'll be a long series, and I'm incredibly excited for it. I am leaning towards Golden State in six. Actually, we'll see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a final uh, pick as we get closer to the finals. But I'm picking Golden State as of right now to win in a longer series because I trust their overall commitment to the job, their attention to detail, their leadership, And there's a guy named Steph Curry who's been there before. He's been there five times. He will be immensely comfortable, just like LeBron was on the early Golden State teams in the finals where he was clearly the most comfortable guy on the floor. I expect that to be Steph in this final series, and I think it's going to be a huge swing factor to Golden State. All right, we have two other things real quick I want to hit tonight. I want to talk a little bit about Dallas. I'm looking forward. And then at the end, I want to talk about this LeBron-Steph debate that was going all over the place on social media because of Patrick Beverly. All right. So I talked about Luca's defense. I'm not going to get into that again. Luca has to get in better shape and become a better defensive player. That goes without saying. But one of the most interesting dynamics that I noticed in this series and throughout this entire playoff run is that Luca was not making his catch and shoot threes. And so I went into the numbers and looked to see, usually that's how I always, I'm trying to attach things with the eye test to things that are represented statistically. Because I think either without the other is worthless, right? And numbers that don't actually represent what's happening on the floor are worthless, and whatever you perceive is happening on the floor that's not also leading to statistical success is also worthless. It needs both. Lucas shot 27% on catch-and-shoot threes in this playoff run before tonight. That's awful. That's extraordinarily bad. Now, catch-and-shoot threes are an entirely different dynamic than pull-up threes. Pull-up threes are so much more about touch and getting lift and getting separation. Luca shot 40% on pull-up threes in this series before tonight, 37% overall, so he shot better there. Catch-and-shoot threes are way more about muscle memory and repeating the same motion every single time. You have to take time to work on catch-and-shoot threes. When I go through my shooting routines, I always make sure there's a good balance between what I'm doing with step-back threes and pull-up threes and step-back jump shots, pull-up jump shots, turn-around jump shots out of the post. I always have a balance between that kind of thing and just a shit ton of reps and standard catch-and-shoot threes. Because, again, this is the most important dynamic here because let's, we talked a lot about heliocentric offenses earlier in the show. In order for a heliocentric offense to win a championship, they're going to have to bring in another star, right? We're going to talk about that here in just a second. So let's say they bring in another star. All of a sudden, Luca's usage rate is going to go way down, and he's going to have to be a threat on, on possessions when he does not have the ball. He's not quick enough to do what Steph does and just fly around off the of screens and stuff, right? He'll be able to do the occasional deep seal when he gets switched onto a smaller defender, kind of the, some of the stuff that LeBron does, right? But a huge part is going to be him de- turning himself into a successful catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. This is actually something that I think LeBron has done a really nice job towards the end of his career. He he even spots up a little bit further outside the line. He'll spot up at about 25 feet instead of 22, 23 feet, just so he has that little extra bit of space, and, and it, it, it makes that defender have to go a little bit further out and he'll, LeBron's a gunner in catch-and-shoot situations. And I, I, Luca will take them at the end of the clock when he has to, but it seems like that's not a big enough part of his game. And I think that's going to be a huge part in addition to his conditioning and in, in, condition, in addition to his ability to defend, he's going to have to make himself a threat off the basketball. Now, I talked about them retaining a star. With Dallas, it's vitally important that they retain assets. The Warriors just clearly demonstrated this. Kevin Durant says he wants to leave. Says he's going to Brooklyn. Golden State has two options. Let him go or engage the Brooklyn Nets and try to bring something back for KD. As a result, they overpaid for a player they didn't like, D'Angelo Russell. As a matter of fact, they didn't like him so much that I actually have been pretty critical of Golden State and the way they handled him, and they kind of burnt him to the ground after they traded him away, which I, I thought was unprofessional. But the the move of retaining D'Angelo Russell was genius because they were able to flip him to Minnesota, not just for Andrew Wiggins, but for picks. And Andrew Wiggins is now a vitally important part of a team that I think is going to win the NBA championship this year. So retaining assets is one of the most important dynamics to maintaining your competitiveness. As you move forward over the years, you need to, Resign Jalen Brunson to whatever he asks, or not what he asks, but whatever he dictates in the open market. Because even if you don't think he's the number two for Luka, you need the asset. Jalen Brunson is not a star, but he did demonstrate in this postseason run that he is an effective matchup attacker. He can beat people off the dribble. He's got a great mid-range game. He's a competitor. He had some massive games in this playoff run. So he does have value. And if there's a disgruntled star somewhere around the league, somewhere around the next couple of years, and you're engaging them as the Dallas Mavericks, and you can come to them and say, hey, I've got all these draft picks. Also, here's Jalen Brunson, a player that's at least a good player for you. You know, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so. Retaining assets is important to engage in those trade situations. So I think it's really, really important for Dallas this summer to not, you know, I, Yeah, they're not good enough. They need another star. But don't let guys walk for nothing. Follow the Golden State example. Retain your assets. Be prepared to engage teams in the trade market. Okay, so I had no intention of talking about LeBron and Steph tonight. Wasn't planning on really getting into that unless Steph got the trophy, which obviously there's still one more step there. But I do think Steph will end up getting the trophy. I typically don't care anywhere near as much about all-time player rankings now as I did when I was younger. I bought into that stuff a lot, a lot more when I was younger. Now, as, as I've gotten older, I'm a lot more, you know, just aware of the fact that this situation is way too complicated. Everyone's way too entrenched. Like, all of you Warriors fans listening, you think Steph was better. I can't tell you you're wrong. You know, I disagree with you, but I can't tell you you're wrong. Like, and th- th- there is no static environment. This is not tennis. This is a team sport. Not only does talent play a role, injuries play a role, makes and misses play a role. I mean, I watched a play-in game last year where Steph vastly outplayed LeBron for the entire game. Now, LeBron was hurt and just come back from injury. But Steph, like, resoundingly outplayed LeBron. And LeBron made a wild contested three at the end of the shot clock and stole the game. You know, like, basketball is a team sport. It's not tennis none of this stuff ever just comes down to lebron won therefore he's better than steph or steph won therefore he's better than lebron this stuff is complicated and all of that complication is why i've been so annoyed by these kinds of topics over the years but we we were forced to discuss it a little earlier than i thought because of patrick beverly going on espn today and saying that lebron and steph were close to each other all the time now to be clear up front steph is my second favorite player of this era. I think he has resoundingly established that spot. Meaning, yes, he's significantly ahead of Kevin Durant for this era. And I think, that, I think that that is a remarkable accomplishment on his part. That said, I think as the years have gone by, LeBron has almost become a little underrated. And the, the reason for that is I think he fell short of the MJ standard. And as he's gotten older, it's been drama with the Lakers. And it's been two times missing the playoffs in a first-round exit surrounding the championship. And so LeBron's kind of drifting out of focus a little bit. Meanwhile, Steph is having a remarkable season, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. And the Warriors are on the title run. And that's just kind of the nature of recency bias, right? But I want to remind people why LeBron is in the GOAT conversation to begin with. Because now I don't have LeBron ahead of MJ, but there's a reason why he's in that conversation. This is a guy, you know, I talk about shots at the table. We talked about this with Colin Coward on Sunday. In order to win a championship, a lot of things have to break your way. Like for Golden State even this year, some things are breaking their way. You catch a matchup, right, in, with Denver in the first round. You don't have to face Jamal Murray. You don't have to face uh, Michael Porter Jr., right? You go into the second round and John Morant gets hurt. You go into the third round and you get to play a weaker Dallas team because Dallas beat a Phoenix team that had an injury at the point guard position in Chris Paul, right? You have some things go your way, but things go your way every time you win a championship. There's no such thing as you just going through and beating everybody at full strength. It almost never happens. LeBron's last title, 2020, a bunch of things went their way. Steph and uh, KD were on their couches. Kyrie Irving was on his couch. And he went through some stars. He went through Damian Lillard. He went through James Harden and Russell Westbrook and Nikola Jokic. But those guys were all on lesser teams. LeBron, he had had Anthony Davis on his team playing at the peak of his powers, right? You need some things to go your way. But if I get seven opportunities to play the game and three, uh, you know, sometimes things are going to go not my way, but sometimes things will go my way. And when they do. That's how I end up with three or four championships. I have to get to the table enough times for things to break my way. And what's so interesting is, is more often than not, we just make it, we simplify it down to just who had the trophy and that's all that matters. LeBron is in the GOAT conversation because he has consistently in a 20 year career for basically 19 of those years. I'll take that back. We'll take away the, we'll take away this last year because of injuries. And we will take away the 2019 season, the the Mario Hazonia block, the wine under the seat. So for 17 years of a 20-year career, excluding those two that I just mentioned and his rookie season, he's been so damn good that his team's had a puncher's chance to win the title. That 17 seasons is exactly what puts him in the GOAT conversation. Because when you're talking about who the best basketball player of all time is, I like to think of that personally as a static situation. If I had to pick a player, irrespective of talent, irrespective of coaching, irrespective of things going your way, what player gives you the best chance to win? And LeBron having 17 of those seasons is what puts him in that conversation. So with Steph, he's had a remarkable run here. But not only, okay, so personally, I think LeBron's peak because of his two-way play and the way he was as a defensive threat, in addition to what he brought as an offensive player, that's, we're seeing this from Giannis right now, he had a world-beating element to him. There wasn't a player in the world that could touch how good he was in 2012 and 2013. Steph, I never, I never thought Steph had a peak like that. But in addition to that, he just hasn't had the same number of shots at the table. His window has been shorter. Because we lost two seasons, right, over the last couple years because of some bad luck last year with him falling on that step and bruising his tailbone, which led to him being in the play-in tournament. And then the year before, him breaking his hand, right? And then outside of that, you know, he hasn't been relevant since like 2013. Or he was relevant starting in about 2013. So I'm getting a shorter window of opportunity with Steph. And I'm getting a lower peak ceiling than stuff. So for me, that just simply makes a chasm there. But that's why, for me, when I'm ranking players all time, a couple things. I always have guards and wings separate from bigs. I think they play an entirely different position. To me, it's like comparing an offensive lineman to a quarterback. And then I also split eras. I don't think of anything pre-1980 because it's also just an entirely different sport. So for me, I have... MJ and LeBron in the top tier. And I think MJ's clearly above LeBron, but I think LeBron's the only guy who's in that conversation. Then when I drop down from there, that's where I get to the Kobe, the Magic, the Bird, and then I have Steph in that group if he wins a title this year. So for me to say that with that short window, with Steph having only really been relevant in the championship landscape for about half as long as LeBron was, for him to be in the same conversation as Larry freaking Bird, and Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant, that's remarkable. That's an unbelievable accomplishment. But that degree of difficulty has to be factored in there. I put in my notes, the two guys that Steph's career reminds me the most of in terms of long like rankings of the all-time great players, Magic and Kobe strike me the, as the most, uh, re- most realistic comps. Because degree of difficulty does matter. LeBron won a championship with Anthony Davis in 2020, and that was probably the best team that he had, right? And what Anthony Davis did that season was amazing, but he was a play finisher. There was no debate as to who the best player on that team was. Kyrie Irving, it's been exposed now that outside of scoring the basketball, he just doesn't bring that much to a team. So you got to give LeBron a lot more credit for what he did in 2016. And then in 2012 and 2013, Dwayne Wade was a shell of himself, which is how they trailed against the Boston Celtics in 2012, which is how they trailed against the Indiana Pacers in 2012, which is how they trailed to the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2012, which is how they trailed to the Pacers and Spurs in 2013. The reason why those series were so close was because, yes, there were big names involved, but Bosch and Wade were clearly at a level below LeBron. The, the titles that Steph won with Kevin Durant remind me a lot more of the titles that Kobe won with Shaq or the titles that Magic won with Kareem in the early 80s. They're still titles. They're incredible indicators of what they are as engines. They're incredible indicators of of their overall basketball ability, but they aren't the same degree of difficulty as what LeBron did in his four championships. And even though in my book, Steph has a finals MVP for 2015, that's why lebron has four of them there was no debate there was no conversation about who the best player in the team was there was a clear engine that was making the whole thing work and so one of the things that that hurt steph in this regard is that kevin durant those those championships with kevin durant just had a lower degree of difficulty but again i'm just pointing those things out to juxtapose him with LeBron freaking James, the second best basketball player to ever play the game, who for 17 seasons was in the conversation for being the best player in the game and very well might have been and gave his team chances to win championships and won 10 conference titles in the process. So for me to say that Steph is in a tier with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant is not an insult in my opinion. For me to say that Steph was better than Kevin Durant in this era, but not as good as LeBron is not an insult to Steph in my opinion. But once again, and this is the last thing I'll say about it, you Steph fans, if you think, if you think Steph was better than LeBron, I, I can't argue with you there. This is a subjective take. It's, it's so much more comes down to personal preference because this isn't tennis. And we don't have clear-cut results to, to, di- to dictate this kind of thing. It's all about weighing context. And everyone weighs context differently, so it's impossible to reach common ground. So if you guys want to tell me in the comments, if you want to tell me, if, if you ever see me out in public and you come up and chat and you say, hey, I think Steph's better than LeBron all time, more power to you, man. I, I, can't, I can't disagree with you, and I can't prove you wrong. All I can do is disagree with you. But for Steph to have, if, if he's got one last task he has to accomplish, but if he closes this deal then it's an unbelievable accomplishment for him to get into that tier of players with his shorter prime relative. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate you guys hanging out. I apologize for the technical difficulties we had earlier. If you missed any part of the show, you'll find it in its totality on YouTube. If you can't check it out on YouTube because you don't have time to get on your computer or on your phone, go to our podcast feed, Lakers Tonight. You can find the full show there, typically a couple hours after we finish. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. No live show over the course of the next couple of days. I am traveling to Charlotte uh, with my wife. So tomorrow night, before I hit the road, I'm going to upload a breakdown of the Celtics Heat Game 5 or 6. I expect the series is to be over at that point. So at that point, I will probably take some much needed days off this weekend to enjoy time in Charlotte, but I'll have my equipment with me and I might do some film breakdowns or or do a a preview of the finals. We'll see. And then the NBA finals start next week on Thursday. And I think it's going to be incredible. So as always, I appreciate your guys' support and rocking with me and I will see you guys tomorrow night.
0: bundled savings variant are not available in every state coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions getting ready to take on spring make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools from hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more right now you can save 50 dollars on select battery tool sets real steel